The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. President Donald Trump finally rolls out his tax plan. Equifax makes a hapless attempt to oust its CEO, and demolished Puerto Rico prays for relief. These are the issues we'll be tackling in this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm your host, Jennifer Saba, and I'm here, as always, with Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Jen. How are you doing? Good. So after another blistering defeat to repeal Obamacare, President Trump and congressional Republicans unveiled their long-awaited tax overhaul plans. The list includes reducing the corporate tax rate to 20% from 35%. Uh, But to help pay for these uh, reduced levies on the business side, the plan also wants to scrap state and local tax deductions. This would raise way more than $1 trillion. It's an old idea that keeps getting resurrected and would hurt basically blue states uh, more than red states. So on the phone to discuss this with us and what else is going on in, in Washington at the moment is Breaking Views columnist Gina Chon. Hey, Gina, how are you doing? Hey, guys, I'm good. So, Gina, let's start with a quick autopsy. Um, are all these various Republican plans to kill Obamacare finally dead themselves? I sure hope so, and I think a lot of Republicans do too after multiple tries and not managing to get it over the finish line for any of them. I mean, the big pressure this time around was uh, the deadline for um, trying to get this through with only a simple majority through the Senate, uh, which expires at the end of September. So that was really driving this latest push, and as in uh, last attempts, they fell short by about one or two votes. So hopefully with this deadline passing and and, uh, no longer being able to have that simple majority standard that um, they will finally move on to tax reform, which will also be very difficult. So that that so in the future they'll have to try and get sixty votes to pass any reform for Obamacare, right? Yes, unless they bring it back again and try to do it under reconciliation, which they only have limited tries. There's only sort of three different scenarios each year under which they could do it. So and they've been pretty much pounded into the ground each time already. So it really would be uh, ridiculous of them to try again. But who knows? Who knows? So like you said, we're on to tax reform now. Uh, which was uh, one of the other big things that the Republicans have been pushing for a very long time. Um, the last big tax reform was under Reagan in 1986, you know, a comprehensive tax reform. Are the Republicans and, and Trump pushing for a similar kind level of reform as we saw back then, or is it more, rather more piecemeal? Uh, I mean, the what they've laid out where uh, there's certainly a lot of details that still need to be filled in, but transforming uh, the United States from a worldwide tax system in which uh, profits are, are taxed no matter where it's earned, and moving it to a territorial system in which they're earned um, where the profits are actually made. Those kinds of changes would actually um, constitute real reform. The problem is whether they can get there. They've already had to reduce expectations on their rate cuts themselves. They've had to um, throw in some things that could raise revenue because estimates show that their plan would um, raise the deficit by at least $5 trillion over a decade. So there's a lot of hurdles uh, that they still face. So, Gino, one thing that jumped out at me was a 20% uh, corporate tax rate. Is that doable or is that number just too low? I mean, I've seen certain estimates saying that if 
maybe 25%? Or is there not enough details yet in this plan to kind of give a sense of if this is achievable or not? I mean, even without the details, um, most Republicans behind closed doors will tell you even 20% will be pretty tough. Uh, President Trump has been pushing for 15% and even mentioned it um, in various comments this week. But 20% is sort of their best case scenario that they've outlined in the framework they just released. But as you said, you know, I think 22 to 25% is, is more realistic, which is, you know, still better than the 35% rate that currently stands, but is obviously not um, going as far as Trump had wanted. Now, as we alluded to in the introduction, this needs to be paid for somehow. So how do they cover this? There was one tax break I think you, you, you want to mention known as SALT, which is all about state and local and federal taxes. So why don't you talk us through what it is and, and why it's such a hot button issue? Yeah, that's one of the big uh, potential revenue raisers. It would bring in at least $1.3 trillion over a decade if they got rid of these deductions, which basically apply to um, real estate and personal property taxes, in addition to state income taxes or sales taxes. So you have to choose between one or the other. But basically, you can uh, deduct that from um, your federal tax filings and, and lower your tax bill. Now, this um, happens to uh, benefit mostly the uh, more Democratic-leaning states like New York and uh, California, where they already have um, high taxes. It it also benefits those who itemize their deductions, which really affects the wealthy. So overall, only 30% of Americans um, itemize, but uh, a much bigger percentage, more than 80% of those who earn um, at least $100,000 a year uh, t- take advantage of this SALT provision. So you're saying this hits... Uh, Democratic states more, but do we know whether it hits Democratic voters more in those states? Because the more wealthy people are, the, the theory goes, the more they vote Republican. Yeah, so it, it does depend on the states themselves and drilling down to the individual districts. And that's actually why it's a problem that is broader than um, just the blue states, because this um, tax deduction is available to everyone in the country. So you actually see... Um, states that also went for Trump in the 2016 presidential election, whether it's Wisconsin or Ohio or Pennsylvania, also take advantage of these deductions and would also uh, be hit if this was eliminated. What about states like Florida and Texas, which which don't charge income tax? They must be loving the idea of this, or are they going to get hit some other way? So the people who take advantage of it are as a bigger proportion of the population as they are in New York and elsewhere, but they definitely do still take advantage of it because you can choose between state income tax or sales taxes in terms of the deduction. So with Florida, they have a 6% sales tax. So um, the Tax Policy Center did a study that showed that um, if you got rid of the self-provision, average taxes would go up there by about $1,400. So um, those states would, would still be affected. And what's the average for the, for the uh, northern states or the more wealthy states? Yeah, so, so some of them range from, you know, 2,000 to um, much bigger hits like, you know, 6,000, um, 8,000, etc., again, depending on um, 
sort of where you are. I mean, uh, not surprisingly, the, the bigger the hits are much more concentrated in the um, urban areas, whether it's sort of around New York City or the, the suburbs around it and, and similar areas elsewhere. So, Gina, um, they also uh, rolled out a plan for individual tax uh, rates, correct? And they narrowed the brackets down um, from, what was it, six to about three um, in terms of the tax rate that may affect people. So what what do you make of that? And has that simplified the process or is it just kind of smoke and mirrors? So, yeah, it's seven uh, brackets to three. The lowest rate, though, right now is 10%, and under this new tax plan, I would actually bump it slightly up to 12%. It does reduce the highest uh, rate from about 39.6% to 35%, um, so you are seeing reductions there and the simplification of, of only going down the three brackets. The problem is they didn't detail um, what at what income level those rates would apply which is obviously um, a huge factor for people trying to figure out how this would affect them. Um, They say that they're trying to leave these details up to Congress because it's really up to them to write the legislation and fill out these details and frankly, I think, give them some wiggle room as they know that this will be a a pretty tough haul and they want to give themselves as much flexibility. But in terms of then you know, the general public knowing how this would affect them, it's still a little blurry. So, I mean, one of the things also I wanted to ask you about is, you know, right after the uh, fact that they can't repeal Obamacare, it seems like both Republicans and Democrats are eager to overhaul the tax code and get this kind of an order. But what are the possibility or what is the possibility that any of this can get through? Is, is this, would this be more rancorous than the health care debate? Well, there's different sort of constituencies in in this one. Um, The problem is there's lobbyists for pretty much every single provision that you want to touch in this plan. So that's going to be a huge issue that lawmakers will have to deal with. Now, on the Democratic side, they're upset about the cuts for the wealthy and certain business tax cuts that they feel like uh, are better off being sent to give more relief to the middle class. There are also some on the Republican side, especially some fiscal conservatives who are worried about how much this is going to add to the deficit. And the plan unveiled doesn't actually give details of how it would affect the budget and and America's fiscal health. So there's definitely a lot of obstacles in the way. The one thing that's motivating, especially the Republicans, is, as you say, after the several failures to repeal Obamacare. They really do want to win. Um, The question is whether it's in the form that they just unveiled or if it's a much more modest package of just maybe a few tax cuts and then they call it a day, which is what might happen in the end. And what what vote is needed in the Senate for this to pass? Is Is it straight up majority or is it 60 votes as well? Yeah, so they are trying to also do this under um, reconciliation, which means they have to pass a budget resolution first, and then that would allow them to pass this only with uh, 51 votes, or actually even 50 votes, and then Vice President Pence would be the tiebreaker. So they are trying to lower the bar there, which is you know another sign of how difficult this is going to be. Okay, Gina, I'm sure we'll be discussing this and many other 
uh, DC issues in the future. Thanks once again for coming on. Speak to you soon. Thanks, guys. Equifax has added insult to injury. It trotted out the worst euphemism earlier this week when its CEO, Rick Smith, said he was retiring after cyber criminals hacked into the system and accessed details of 143 million U.S. customers. It may be one of the most significant data breaches ever. Joining us on the phone from London is Breaking Views Deputy Editor Richard Beals. Welcome, Richard. Hi, guys. How are you? Uh, we're doing okay. So, listen, you, Richard, you've covered many uh, hacks over the years. What makes this one at Equifax so significant? Well, first of all, it's Equifax. It's a credit scoring agency. It holds data on tens of millions of Americans. Really, you know, they have no choice about that. It's it's one of the places that your bank goes to to get inform- your credit score when, when you want to um, borrow or, or get a mortgage or something. So it's a very significant place to get a hack. Um, then there's the sheer size. It's 143 million people. I mean, Yahoo had a hack, which supposedly was over a billion people, but the amount of information for each person that might have been affected was much, much smaller. Here, with Equifax, you have names, addresses, Social security numbers, that critical sort of U.S. identity thing, it, it sort of raises the possibility that tens of millions of people could, in theory, have their identity stolen. So finally, Equifax comes out and says, oh, this guy's retiring. Take us through like the bumbling steps that, I mean, they knew about this for a while. Isn't that the case? Well, it, it's always difficult to know what went on, but what seems pretty clear is they fumbled this whole thing from the hack, from the response to the hack itself, sort of technologically speaking, to the PR and communication once they discovered it. So the, the, the hackers were in the system for a long time, I think a couple of months at least, and, you know, that's sometimes the way hackers are going to get in, but you need better detection systems if you're, if you're holding people's confidential credit information. Then they waited six weeks to tell the public about it when 143 million people's sensitive information have been compromised. Now, six weeks, again, you might wait a few days. That might be completely reasonable, maybe even a week or two, just to try to get the measure of the problem because it takes a while to figure out sometimes. Right. But six weeks, it's, it's crazy. And then they, there's this catalogue of other things. The initial site where you were supposed to be able to check whether whether your records had been hacked seemed to deliver completely random results. And then... Um, they were trying to sell you products too. Wasn't that the other issue to kind of protect well, your... Well, your... you know, there was a... They, they were giving you this product for free, but it was a paid product ultimately. So people worried they might then be charged eventually. And then they had some language on there that said, if you sign up for this product, you can't any longer um, sue us over this matter, which they later had to take out because that was intended for the paid product. Um, then at one point they, they had the wrong link in some of their releases, sending people to, the, to a, actually a phishing site instead of their actual security site. I mean, it sort of goes on. The catalogue of screw-ups goes on and on. I mean, also, I'm right in thinking that a couple of executives also sold stock in between discovering, in between the company discovering the hack and announcing the hack. Uh, that is, yes. So a few days after the hack was discovered, a couple of executives sold, I think, a total of $1.8 million worth of stock. Now, at the time the company said they weren't at that moment aware of this hack had been discovered, we don't know if that was accurate or not, but it certainly looks really bad. So uh, let's turn back to this Rick Smith here. You know, Equifax comes out and says, you know, he's retiring. And, and by saying that, he doesn't really have a financial impact to his wallet, does he? I mean, this kind of allows him to kind of scurry away 
and they said they were either keep him on as an advisor. Maybe he doesn't get his bonus, but for the most part, it seems kind of like he's walking away with a, a pretty decent package. Yeah, it's the standard euphemism, right? It's kind of if you're fired for cause, I mean, a board has to show cause when they fire a CEO for cause, but w- if that happens, you stand to lose much more of what you've accumulated over time, potentially, than if you, quote, unquote, retire. I mean, they have sort of reserved the right to change that definition, which is actually more than some boards have done in the past. But, you know, you'd think investors would also be a bit um, annoyed about this because, you know, the stock is down nearly a third since this hack was made public. And, you know, that's quite a few billion dollars that he's now cost cost them off the, off the value of their investment. So you'd think they'd be pretty mad that he was walking away with, we, we don't know what with. He was paid $15 million last year. He's been at the company a long time, so he's accumulated a lot of pension benefits and things like that. But he could be walking away with tens of millions of dollars. And, and then what's even worse is that they kind of replaced him with somebody else within the company. And the, and the board also has been around for a very long time. So it doesn't really seem to get at the root of the problem, even if, you know, regardless if he retired to spend time with his family or if he was fired, you're still left with, you know, executives who were there during this this hack. Right. So the the sort of gold standard, which, you know, in my view, really should be the standard standard for cybersecurity is that boards, at the board level, you pay close attention. Probably at the board level, you have experts in cybersecurity. And at the board level, you run drills in what you would do as a company if you were hacked. Now, clearly, none of these things seem to have been done at Equifax. And a lot of the board has been around for a long time. And the sort of interim fix now that uh, Rick Smith is, is going is to put somebody, one of the board members in as chairman and one of the senior executives in as the CEO for the time being. Um, so, you know, it, it's like the same old guard, the board and, and one of the executive team who seem not to have paid enough attention to the security of the data. I mean, there, you know, there, there's an interesting facet to this, which is if you read their materials, you know, they're annual report, things like that for the last couple of years, there's this huge focus on selling new products. Now, the product is the data that has been hacked. Unfortunately, the customers are not the people whose data has been hacked. They are kind of the raw material for these credit scoring companies, and, and they're the ones who seem to have lost out here. Well, that's also what's what's interesting about it. Unlike some other cyber uh, hacks, like with Target, for example, a consumer could say, listen, I'm not going to shop at Target anymore. I'm going to... Um, you know, not use my Target credit card or whatever it may be. Here, you, it does your choice as a consumer, quote unquote. I mean, it doesn't seem like you have a choice in the matter. Your hands are tied. Equifax is scooping up this information, whether you want them to have your social security number or not, which is it's incredible to me that they're allowed to just kind of have this without really anybody's permission. Right. I mean, you, you certainly don't have to opt in, right? If you're in the U.S. and you you have the three big credit firms, there's a, a, another smaller one as well, um, that just have your data. The banks give them data. Um, they have some additional regulatory requirements because of that important role they play in the consumer finance um, system in the U.S., but it, 
you know, it, it yes, all, with, with all of them. I mean, they're all notoriously difficult to deal with if there's an error in your credit record. It's notoriously difficult to change stuff. Right. And so that's one thing. And then if you're unlucky enough to have your identity stolen, it can be a struggle not only to get that sort of corrected, but also to get the, these three credit scoring firms to get it corrected. And, and yet nobody has agreed that they should be in control of their data. It's, it is a really sort of conflicted situation. All right. Well, we'll leave it at that. Thank you, Richard, for dialing in. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. The U.S. Territory is on the cusp of a humanitarian crisis while Washington drags its feet on providing swift aid. Jen, you wrote about this. Puerto Rico, is, it's, it's, it's a messy story. It's not, an, it's not an official state. It doesn't have representation in uh, the U.S. Congress. Uh, it's facing uh, a bankruptcy and now has maybe up to $85 billion of damage from the storm. What do we do next? Yeah, it's, it's really... Uh it's a terrible situation. I guess there's no other way to, to frame it. But so here they are in limbo in terms of their statehood. Mm-hmm. So they are a U.S. territory, a commonwealth. Um, it, it means that Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, but they don't have full representation in Congress. So what you've seen so far is a lot of foot dragging in terms of sending federal aid in the form mm-hmm. of FEMA dollars to Puerto Rico. And whereas with Harvey and uh, Hurricane Harvey and Hurricane Irma, you saw a lot of money going to Florida and Texas, which were both battered Mm. by those hurricanes. So they're they're dealing with this and it's not they they have no electricity. There's no clean water and food or I should say it's scarce. Um, Hospitals are are just in this terrible shape. Um, It's a real crisis. And as we've seen with other places like, for example, Haiti and and many places around the world, this is going to be a breeding ground for cholera, for malaria, for so many different things. Zika Zika. may return. I mean, it's going to be a real problem. And there are about 3.4 million people on um, the island as as of now. Um, And so when I was looking at this, it's like, okay, well, you have to sit here and consider a couple factors. One, Puerto Rico already filed for bankruptcy, as you mentioned earlier. Or whatever we call it for states when they restructure. Not sure. They're bust. Yeah. They've gone bust. <laughs> so, um, and they owe seventy, uh, roughly $72 billion. Right. So, so and they haven't really made a head start yet on fixing no, it. No, this was right. all kind of happened earlier yeah. this year. So they're struggling uh, with that. And, you know, that's sort of framing some of this context. You know, President Trump sort of mentioned this fact. It was kind of unclear why he brought up their debt, but it was brought up. And it's like, you know... In a tweet, uh, as usual. In a tweet. Um, and again, it's a humanitarian crisis. They need money. This this shouldn't be about... Yeah, I mean, you should read, you be paying back Wall you Street? You read that, that, that text and it's almost, that tweet. It's almost as if he's trying to... Uh, equate aid with their ability to sort out their finances. Right. And it wasn't really clear what he meant, but just but the, the fact that he brought it up is weird. Mm. Um, mm. So, I mean, you kind of have that against this backdrop. And then, you know, the fact that they don't have full representation, the, the people that are in Washington, they don't have a vote. So, you know, you kind of have to think, oh, is this at play here? But there are U.S. citizens. Mm. And what's happening is their population is is on the decline. And it has been on the decline for... Because uh, of the, the, the problems of the island, right? So yeah, just, just overall. So, yeah. so already it's been hard hit. Um, you know, uh, the, the economy has not been growing. Um, since 2010, the population has been on a steady decline. This hurricane will likely just hasten a mass exodus. Mm. And mostly because people are U.S. citizens, they come to the mainland 
um, to settle. And so, you know, that that is going to cause a spiral of trying to get get Puerto Rico. Right, which means that we've already heard this from, from, from some some elected representatives. Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, has been mentioning this, saying basically you're welcome to come here. We'll make sure schools are ready for you. A t- tough call. But, you know, at least he's talking about it in a positive way. But, you know, from, for the representatives of, uh, of the state in Washington and elsewhere where there are plenty of Puerto Ricans already in situ, this has got to be a big issue, right? Because you've got to think, how do we pay for this? Do we get federal aid for this? I mean, we're going to have an influx of thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands even or more of people who will need jobs, will need somewhere to stay, will need food, will need aid of some description or other, which again brings us back to what you're saying. Yeah, and on the flip side, if more people leave the island, there's going to be fewer people there to fix it. There's a, you know, the tax base isn't anywhere mm. where it should be. And so paying back that, you know, 70 billion of you know, debt that they're in is going to yeah. become more and more difficult on right. top of all the other issues that they now have. And how do you go about restructuring the island after this? I mean, I think you know, agriculture has been wiped out. I think one someone was saying yesterday that um, it's like almost eighty percent of crops yeah, can't yeah. even find their cat, some of their cows. Yeah. Um, there's tourism on the island, uh, but that's got to be. I mean, no one's going to go there for a while yet. Right. So, is it even? I mean, this is an awful question to ask. Is it worth resuscitating? An island like this or other islands in the, that are going to be in the path of these hurricanes more and more over the next few years? Well, I mean, that's an interesting question because we certainly didn't ask the same questions for New Orleans with Katrina yeah. or Houston uh, with Hurricane Harvey. Houston is built on a swamp. Um, yeah. And so and it's sprawl. It's just that's that's the whole thing behind Houston. So, um, you know, if, if you're going to apply those questions, you should apply them fairly across yeah. the board. Um, so that's unclear. I mean, well, but but what is very clear is that Puerto Rico is in a lot of trouble and they are a U.S. territory. So that kind of puts um, America, you know, certainly from a, a moral standpoint, you have to help them just from a humanitarian level. Yeah. But but also I think there's there are other commitments that this country has to make. Well, I think that this is a story that involves you know, climate change, migration, statehood, representation, so many different things. I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to come back to this uh, in the future. Jen, thank you so much for talking us through that. Thanks, Anthony. That's our show for this week. We'd like to thank our guests, Gina Chon and Richard Beals, and hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio, Ryan Warner, and Freddie Joyner. And finally, our thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingnews.com and subscribe to The Fuse Room on iTunes. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.